This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, everybody. I hope you're all doing well and that you had a very nice Thanksgiving holiday. I think we've got an interesting show for you today. Today, we talk with Uli Lorimer, Horticulture Director for the Native Plant Trust, headquartered in Massachusetts. Uli has written a wonderful new book called The Northeast Native Plant Primer, 235 Plants for an Earth-Friendly Garden. In this book, Uli takes a deep dive into the native plants of the Northeast, showing through his selection just how diverse and varied the habitats of the region really are. According to Uli, the decision to plant natives in the garden is one of the most important and impactful choices you can make to help birds, other wildlife, and the planet. Okay, and now I'd like to introduce Uli Lorimer to the show. Uli, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. I can't tell you how excited I am about your new book. It's just fantastic. I've already learned so much already. But I did have some specific questions for you as I was reading along. But first of all, could you maybe tell our listeners about your role with the Native Plant Trust and how you got started there? Sure, I'd be happy to. I currently serve as the Director of Horticulture for Native Plant Trust. What that involves is sort of daily site oversight over the operations at our headquarters, which is in Framingham, the Garden of the Woods. And I'm also responsible for the operations of our nursery facility. We have a 75-acre nursery in Waitley, Massachusetts, which is just outside of Northampton and Hadley, where we grow a lot of wonderful plants for sale for restoration projects for a lot of different purposes. And I came to Massachusetts about three years ago to step into this role. Previously had been the curator of native flora for the Brooklyn Botanic Garden position that I had for 14 years. And prior to that, I worked at another really wonderful garden in New York City, a garden called Wave Hill, located in the Bronx. And prior to that, I was employed at the U.S. National Arboretum in Washington, D.C. Now, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the Native Plant Trust in Framingham, Massachusetts? You know, all of us Native plant fanatics really consider that place Shangri-La. You know, we all want to go there. Sure. So Native Plant Trust is the nation's first plant conservation organization. And we've had uh, over 100 years of work with conserving native plants in the wild and growing them for uses in gardens. I'd like to think of the organization as being supported by three pillars. Those are plant conservation, horticulture, and public programming. And so our plant conservation department is active in all six states of New England. We have a a wonderful program called the New England Conservation 
program or NEPCOP for short, where we train citizen scientists to help us monitor and collect seed from all of the known rare plant populations throughout New England. This is a great program that's been going now for nearly 30 years. We have a seed bank with a lot of wonderful rare plant seeds as a result of this longer effort. I think one of the most important sort of feathers in our cap, if you may, is that we convene meetings state by state every year where we invite federal, state, and local plant conservation entities, so natural heritage programs, fish and wildlife, all the people that need to be in the room at the same time so that we can coordinate efforts. And what it is is a recognition that no one organization or entity can do the work of plant conservation by themselves and that we're much more effective as a collaboration, as a partnership. For horticulture, we have the Botanic Garden here at Garden of the Woods, which is our sort of showcase of how to use native plants in various different situations. The garden was first started, or at least the work on the garden started in the early 1930s and was formally given over to, at the time, the New England Wildflower Society in the mid-1960s. Along with the display gardens, we also grow plants from seeds. So, and that kind of goes hand in hand with a lot of the advocacy work that we do in terms of promoting the use of native plants and encouraging everyone to welcome more of them into their home spaces. And that, again, also dovetails into the public programs. We offer over 200 courses. Some of them are field courses. Some of them are courses that are here, held here at the gardens. All of them have, in one form or another, an online component. And it really allows for mostly adults to delve very deeply into all the various aspects of horticulture, botany, plant conservation, ecology, restoration practices, design. We really offer a lot of different facets of how plants can get used in the landscape and how you can learn to read a landscape when you're out in a wild space. So we have a lot going on at Native Plant Trust. You know, it's not just the garden. There's many, many different things going on behind the scenes. Now, what motivated you to write the book? Just seemed like a really wonderful opportunity that I couldn't pass up to bring together my passion and love for the subject along with a chance to showcase some of my photography. So that's kind of what led me to to write the book. Pretty much an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. And I've always been really interested in teaching and passing on information. And this was a really great way to do that to the broader public. That is great. So tell me, how do we create biodiversity in our backyards? Well, it's not as difficult as as people think. You know, there's a few key elements to welcoming more biodiversity into your yard. Making sure that as much of the ground is covered by plants as possible is one good thing. Creating three-dimensional structure. So having, again, if you have a forest that you have canopy trees and understory trees and a shrub layer, an herbaceous layer, Adding a source of water is important, certainly for a lot of the wildlife. And then I would say to sort of wrap that up, stay away from pesticides. Don't use insecticides, herbicides. All these things will drive life away from your garden as opposed to welcoming it into your garden. And then I'd think that the other key to it, which is sometimes a little bit harder for people to accept, is to embrace landscapes that are a little bit more untidy and messy. And some people seem to be 
naturally drawn to that sort of aesthetic, a more naturalistic style. And yet I see a lot of people still really love to prune their shrubs into geometric shapes and make sure that there's clean and crisp edges everywhere and lots of mulch where the plants don't actually touch each other. You know, and if we take our cues from Mother Nature, that is not at all how nature looks like. And I think it's a, that's part of an aesthetic challenge that is what confronts the native plant movement is how to gain wider acceptance in the face of a very firm belief that those kinds of landscapes are pretty or aesthetic, and that's what we should be aiming for, as opposed to something that mimics the nature that is found around us. Now, you say in your book that nowhere is our estrangement from nature as evident as it is in our backyards. How did we go off the rails? There's a number of things that come into play here. I think that horticulture and the way in which we approach horticulture, we need to take a hard look at its connection with colonialism. And certainly how we have taken a lot of aesthetic cues from European gardens and the idea that if you had an estate large enough that you could devote to lots of lawn, you didn't actually have to grow food, you could have lawn instead. And that by creating outdoor rooms with clipped hedges and in some ways continuing to display our dominance over nature is played out in miniature by the obsession of clipping and pushing things into shapes that are unnatural and wanting to have things that are neat and tidy because it again shows our what we perceive as our control over nature as opposed to trying to work with as many of the different processes as possible and you know i hate to say that you know in the modern world more people would rather stare at their cell phone than take a moment to enjoy the sunshine on the breeze or listen to some birds twittering or contemplate how the sunshine shines through an autumn leaf and the luminance that it produces. We're distracted. And I think that's all of these things play into the sense of estrangement from the nature that's right at our doorstep. Now, I had to chuckle when I read about meatballs. Can you tell our listeners what you call a meatball? <laughs> yeah, those are those, uh, you know, foundational shrubs that are hacked into round shapes. Consider it this way. Perhaps it's a little derogatory and unfair to meatballs to call them that, but <laughs> maybe consider this perspective. You know, the amount of time that it takes and perhaps fossil fuels that it takes to fire up the hedge trimmer and clip this thing into a shape every year, year in, year out, you're keeping it back to the same size. Why not choose something that won't grow as big or something that's well suited in terms of mature size for that plant? And then you can spend your time doing something else other than clipping the hedges. So now one part of your book, which I thought was extremely important, was that you talk about the different phases of succession. And I'm not sure every native gardener is aware of just how many phases of succession there are. Could you talk about those for just a moment? Sure. So the reason to include succession into the book was to try to bring in a little bit of ecology into our practice. And this is really what we promote at Native Plant Trust is ecological horticulture. And so it is understanding ecology and also really trying to weigh the wildlife value of plants equally with their aesthetic value. And so succession is this process by which nature covers ground. 
and the way it responds to disturbance. And so disturbances can be natural events. It could be a storm, a wildfire, an earthquake, something like that, or man-made disturbances, which can be everything from as simple as the act of gardening, which is a type of disturbance, all the way through to invasive species and climate change and all the things that humans have had a cause in. So in New England, I think that perhaps the easiest example of this is to go back and think about when the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution where much of the forest land was cleared for agriculture and fields were planted. And then as the economy turned more towards factories and city living, more and more of those fields were abandoned. And what happens to that abandoned field when nobody's actually out there, you know, haying it or cutting it? So the first phase of plants come in or early successional plants that have evolved to be shade intolerant. They tend to be aggressive because their role is to cover space and then come in trees and they provide more shade. They build up more of the organic layer. And then eventually you have the ripe conditions for longer lived trees like beeches and oaks and hickories and they get established. And then, you know, you fast forward a little bit, uh, let's say 50, 100 years, and you have a young forest. And this is, again, I think it's a very familiar scene to anybody who's walked around in New England is what seems like a forest. And then there are old stone walls everywhere. And those stone walls were the boundaries of open fields at one point, but plant succession has brought the landscape back to its original forested state. And so knowledge of this is really important, as I pointed out in the book, that some of the plants that have evolved to cover space aggressively are very poorly suited for small gardens. And there are others, you know, and I use goldenrods as an example. There are some goldenrods that play very nicely in small spaces and they just form clumps and they don't seed around. And there are others that are much better suited for five or 10 acre meadow where they can really let loose and you don't have to worry about them overwhelming other kinds of plantings. So this is that connection I'm trying to make here and that an understanding of the succession can help gardeners to better predict how plants will behave in their own gardens. So if someone says, oh good, I'm gonna turn my front lawn into a native meadow. What they see growing the first year may not be what they see the second year or the third year or even the fourth and fifth year because of all these successional transitions going on. Yeah, I think it's also worth saying that, you know, if you take your traditional lawn, which is mostly made of non-native European grasses and you stop mowing it, you're not going to get a meadow right away. You're gonna get a lot of taller European grasses along with some of those early successional, what are called ruderal species that might come in. So things like flea banes, maybe some of the goldenrods come in. But you really need to actually introduce some of the grass species that provide the matrix that knits the whole meadow together in order to set that in motion. And if you wait long enough and the conditions are ripe enough that that meadow, you'll see maybe an oak popping on there or maybe an eastern red cedar might pop in. And that's sort of evidence of this process moving forward. What's so interesting now is that, you know, our landscapes are so fragmented. There's so many different kinds of disturbances that we're really in kind of a patchwork phase. And unfortunately, that disturbance also tends to favor invasive species. So think of all of the 
forest edge habitat that's created by parceling out larger pieces of forest. It's putting a road through a forest that now has edge where it wasn't before. And that's the exact kind of habitat that things like bittersweet and honeysuckle and some of our worst invasives tend to favor. We're kind of doing it to ourselves in a way. You know, the other great thing about natives is the root systems. They're much deeper than non-natives. And of course, as you know, here in New England, many states are dealing with extended drought. Up here in New Hampshire, we've got some pretty serious drought situations. People's wells are drying up. So the natives absorb the storm runoff with their roots and hold it so transpiration can occur. That in itself, to me, sells me on native plants Mm -hmm. (laughs) over non-native. What are your thoughts on that in terms of water retention? Well, I mean, I think that if the plants are sited well and sort of matched to the site conditions, they do a really good job of retaining those resources or slowing them down a little bit as they kind of pass through the landscape. You know, I think that they certainly do a better job of retaining water or needing less water than your traditional lawn does. You know, we've had this particular year, as I mentioned, it's been really challenging because of the drought conditions. And here at Garden in the Woods, there were only a few areas closer to our parking lot and the buildings where the plantings really suffered. And I think it was a combination of very sandy soils here on site, mature trees that really suck out a lot of the moisture. But otherwise, in the majority of the rest of the garden, it looked like there wasn't a drought. Everything looked fine. And so that really, again, just further emphasizes that the importance of matching the plants to the right conditions instead of trying to change the conditions to grow the plants that you want. Another nice surprise about your book was reading about native annuals. Well, I included them because I think many people are unaware that there are true annuals in our flora, and they can be really wonderful additions to gardens. What most people think of annuals are tropical plants that are not cold hardy here. And I've come to kind of think of those as almost kind of like throwaway plants that you spend a lot of money from the nursery to plant them. They bloom and they look pretty over the summer and then they die and then you have to repeat the process. And so the native annuals that that I've mentioned here grow in a variety of different habitats that will most certainly bloom once they germinate because they only get one season to do it. I find them valuable because they fill in in little tough spaces, but I also don't expect them to be in the same place every year, year after year. So they tend to move around. Sometimes they get pushed to the edges of things. We used a lot of them in a big project at Brooklyn Botanic Garden where we had seeded a meadow and then overseeded with partridge pea as a cover crop. And the first two years, it was nothing but partridge pea. But what I didn't realize at the time was that the shade and the cover that the annuals provided was what the grasses needed to get to germinate and to get established. And after the third year, there was this wonderful transition of little blue stem and switchgrass and big blue stem and Indian grass and all these other grasses just exploding out of the ground. And then the partridge peas were kind of pushed over to the edges of the pathways. And I had very little weed pressure because of the amount of annuals that were there. And it was just sort of like an aha moment for me that really had me thinking more about encouraging the gardeners to include these native annuals. If there's ever too much, let's say, you know, they germinate too exuberantly, they're easy to thin 
and get rid of. Some of them are really wonderful, like our forget-me-nots or touch-me-not because they have explosive seeds. They draw in hummingbirds. They're great for shady, wet spots. Getting your kids involved to disperse the seeds is a wonderful activity. There's just so many you know, positives to welcoming these plants into your garden. So I'm very happy to have had that opportunity to say, don't forget about our annuals. We have some. They're wonderful plants, and they should be used more widely. So could you just touch on ecoregions? I know in your book you list 12 ecoregions for the Northeast. How do they differ from horticultural zones? So horticultural zones are determined by what are called growing degree days or the average number of days above freezing, average number of days below freezing so that we have some sense of cold hardiness. There's also a heat zone map that's sort of the inverse of that that says, you know, sort of heat tolerance for some of these. But the ecoregions concept is a way to look at plant distributions on a landscape from the plant's perspective. The plants don't care about our political boundaries. They don't identify as being from Massachusetts or Vermont or anything. It's an invisible line that we have imposed on the landscape. Plants are far more likely to be defined by soil characteristics, geology, plant community type, hydrology, and land use patterns. And all of those things are taken into account to create an ecoregion. The reason that I uh, included it was to encourage gardeners to consider sourcing plants from within their ecoregion. And the wisdom behind this is that, you know, locally sourced plants are adapted to local conditions. They come with all of these evolutionary relationships intact. So all of the wildlife that we're looking to support with the use of native plants, you know, when you choose a plant that evolved here, the timing of its flowering, the timing of its seed dispersal coincides with the timing and the life patterns of the pollinators and the seed dispersers and the birds and all the other things that are connected with it. And it's one of the concerns of bringing in plants from further south or from the Midwest and that the timing is mismatched. They might not have the same relationships intact. So we're still a long ways away from, let's say, your average homeowner being able to go into a nursery and say, oh, I know where this plant is from, and I can plant this in my yard with confidence because I know that it came from within my ecoregion. That wasn't really the intention. It was the intention was to introduce the idea and to get the wheels spinning a little bit for folks to think that there's different ways to look at how to define what is native. You know, this is always a big question in the beginning chapter attempts to address this, that depending on time and context, you can define native as something belonging to North America, something belonging to east of the Mississippi, something belonging to Middlesex County in Massachusetts. But really, from the plant's perspective, we need to think of how to define natives differently than our political boundaries and and the way in which we have conceived of the world. So as we wrap up here, I just wanted to ask, you stress the importance of the idea of plant community. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean by plant community? Yes. So plants have evolved together. So let me take a step back and say that I I think one of the most educational activities that any gardener interested in native plants can do is to go out into natural spaces and try to find these plants where they grow naturally. 
and it will be immediately apparent that they grow with others. So there's a community involved. So they have relationships between each other. They support each other in ways that we might not completely understand. And the plant community approach also helps to ensure the natural heritage of an area. So in other words, why does New England look the way it does and it doesn't look like Virginia? Because the plants are different, because the plant communities are distinct. And to continue to make sure that New England will look like New England into the future, we need to look to Mother Nature at the community scale, not just on the individual species scale, to ensure that that happens. And so they're best friends, they're natural bedfellows, they grow together for a reason. And so this is really the crux of the plant community's approach is that, you know, you're really looking at nature for inspiration and seeing in ways in which you can combine plants that honors her designs. Thank you to Uli Lorimer for joining us today. You can find out more about Uli and his book by going to the Timber Press website at timberpress.com. His book is also available on the Barnes & Noble website and amazon.com. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, Please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plants native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now.